Welcome to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. you've joined us today and uh, we've had a full day already we have more to come and uh, although I'm really looking forward to the message I'll be preaching to you in the next few moments I also want to look beyond the service today and call your attention to a couple of people that will be uh, teaching breakout sessions and also be on this stage at 215 with me for a panel discussion about some of the most important questions you can possibly ask. I'm going to put their uh, faces and names on the screen if I can. Ricky Gillette, who's Executive Director of Living Hope Ministries, is with us today. And Katie McCoy, Director of Women's Ministries for Texas Baptist and author of a great new book that uh, really answers a lot of questions about what it means to be a woman, which is obviously a big question today in our culture. And I want to encourage you to come back uh, for that 1 o'clock and then that 2.15 session, which would be in this room, the 2.15 one is, and um, we'll have an opportunity for Q&A, and we've posed some great questions for them already, and they have so much information that is important for us to have in navigating the world that we live in. All right, today we're going to look at a subject that I call the perfect man, the perfect man. This morning at 8.30, we looked at the perfect world. We looked at a Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 account of our world and, and how our world has veered off course from what God created the world to be, how we as human beings have veered off course from that same world. Well, 4,000 years after the creation of the world, Jesus Christ came to live among us. And uh, as you know, Jesus came, born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, the perfect man for us to look to for all answers in life and all the confusion that we have. He has so much to say to us today. So if you have your Bibles today, turn to John 1, John chapter 1, and I'm going to read a few verses out of John chapter 1 and just position this message as hearing from the perfect man about the questions that we're asking regarding healthy home. Please stand with me as I read a few verses out of John chapter 1. Now, the first thing you're going to think about when I read this text is, well, this text doesn't really say a great deal about the identity questions that we're dealing with. What was I created to be? Who was I created to be? It doesn't really say much about gender dysphoria. It doesn't say much about sexuality or homosexuality or uh, sexual ethics in the Bible. These passages that I'm going to read first don't say a great deal about that. But the passages that I read today will position you to see Jesus for who he really is, one that we must listen to when it comes to all those questions. So read with me, if you look at your Bibles, John chapter 1, verse 1. Scripture says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And most of us, when we read John 1, think directly back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So you have in John chapter 1 a very similar wording of this created world. And the Scripture says, And the Word was God. Look what it says in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You immediately recognize this is Jesus Christ that we're talking about. Verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. I want you to just, just note the person, the character, the nature of the perfect man, Jesus Christ here. And we'll see what he has to say about all these things. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to us today from your word, from the mouth of Jesus Christ, from the words of Jesus Christ himself about the questions that our culture is asking and answering in various ways. Help us to know what to say, to talk about the hope that lives within us through the person of Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. Please be seated. For those of you that are not aware of the history of Healthy Home, we once a year focus on something that we call Healthy Home. And of course, it's more than once a year of a focus. We also have classes that come off of this. We have all kinds of communication that takes place. Our heart is to answer the five most important questions on the planet. And the five most important questions on the planet have to do with how you can be healthy in mind and heart and life, how to have a healthy home, how to pass truth on to the next generation with the answer of those five questions. The first question is, who is God and what is truth? And we spent some time last year focusing on that one question all day in a conference similar to this. The second question is the one that we're dealing with today. And that question is, how do I know what I was created for? Who was I created to be? What does God intend for my life? There's another question that we ask from time to time that we'll deal with in future uh, times together. And that is, who are my people? Who am I supposed to be around? Who are the people that give me insight and wisdom to help me live out what God called me to be? How do you have healthy relationships? That's another question that's in the top five. And then that fifth question is, what is my purpose in life? But today, we're asking the question, who was I created to be? And I think you'll agree with me from the beginning that this is one of the most important questions that could possibly be posed in your life. If you were to ask the question, how will I chart out the future of my life? What will my decisions look like? What will my relationships look like? Who was I created to be can help frame the answers for all those decisions that you have down the road. But today we live in a world that has a very different answer to who was I created to be than what we find in the Bible. Culture will defy reasoning. They'll defy nature. They'll defy the historical faith. They'll defy what the scripture says about who we were created to be. And in many ways have lost touch with what we understand the answer to who was I created to be is. You know that you're in a different world when a biological man states, I was born a biological man, but realized at some point that I was a woman. And you should know immediately upon hearing that, that he is having an identity crisis. He is failing to find the answer to who was I created to be. Now, the Bible calls this gender dysphoria or confusion. But the response is often, instead of resolving my confusion and changing my outlook, I choose to undergo treatment or surgery and change my body because we fail to answer the question, who was I created to be? The same error takes place when a biological woman has same-sex desires and instead of focusing on the internal confusion of thoughts and desires, she pursues a same-sex relationship with another woman and again, failing to answer the question, who was I created to be? Now, let me say at the, stop, at the start of this message today, I'm very aware of the weightiness of this subject today. 
And I want you to be aware as well that there are those that are seated next to you perhaps or around you that struggle with these same kinds of questions. There are people whose sons and daughters deal with this subject that we'll be dealing with today. There are people whose grandchildren deal with that. I had a woman come up to me after the first service this morning and said, thank you for the compassion with which we are approaching this kind of question. Thank you for sharing truth, but sharing it in compassion and love. We need clarity and compassion. This woman kept talking and talking about that. She says, my granddaughter has chosen to be in in a same-sex relationship, and I struggle with that, but I'm grateful we can speak the truth, but in love. And that's what I want us to be able to do today. And that's what I want you to be aware of, the sensitivity, the nature of what we're talking about. This is not a rally. This is a time of deep consideration, compassionate weightiness in dealing with what we have in front of us and what our culture is dealing with. But we want to answer the question, who was I created to be? We want you to have that answer before you walk out of this room today. And the way people answer this question today in our, in our culture is, is quite quite a scene. And it poses the question, are we as human beings identified by our own feelings and our own desires? Or do we find our identity in looking to our creator and how he made us? I want you to walk away today knowing the answer to that, knowing that you're not bound by feelings, knowing that you're not bound by desires, but you are one that can find clarity in how you were actually born and how God has actually designed you to be. Uh, I need to tell you today, I need to warn you just a little bit that in this world today that we live in, and in Western Christianity in particular, uh, a new kind of way of looking at Scripture is taking place called progressive Christianity. Some, some call it a revisionist perspective of the Bible. People are coming from what their feelings and what their desires are and reinterpreting Scripture to bring it into alignment with the way they feel. And some of these folks can be very persuasive in how they pose their argument. It's important for you to see that what was written before is for us and helps us and strengthens us, but it's also meant to be timeless and eternal and not changing with the culture, no matter what anybody might say. Jesus will help us with that today. I believe the perspective of Jesus, the view of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, all those things are going to inform us in such a way where we can answer the question, what does Jesus say about sexuality and gender? Wouldn't you agree with me that's an important question? And wouldn't you agree with me that the most important person to answer that question is the infinite God-man, the Word made flesh? So let's look at that in three different ways. First of all, I want you to look at the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus. If your Bible's open to John 1, just turn over a few pages to John chapter 8. I'm going to bring you to a a scene in which Jesus is demonstrating some incredible compassion and incredible clarity at the same time. And that's what we want. We want truth and love. We want clarity and compassion. Those are so so important to our conversations today in this world. So important to to being able to share the gospel. Important to living out the gospel. Important to leading our family or our friends to faith or to truth. We need to have clarity and compassion. Jesus, as always, models the way. John 8 is that famous passage where a woman is caught in the act of adultery. Anybody that knows this text know that the situation is pretty much rigged, that the Pharisees have allowed this woman to be caught in adultery. 
The man is conveniently not in the scene, but they drag the woman in front of Jesus and they're trying to entrap him. And in attempting to do that, Jesus does something very unusual. He kneels uh, on, on the sand and draws in the sand and asks which of them was without sin that they could cast the first stone. When you look at John chapter 8, the scene is said in verse 5, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman or such women. What then did you say? And I love this text because we see something from the Old Testament and something from the New Testament, this new era that Jesus was inaugurating, brought together, hitched together. We get a chance to look at Jesus as he responds to an Old Testament law that's been broken even though all the rigging is going on behind the scene, and we see his response. And his response to me is very telling, very weighty. In verse 11, the Bible says, Jesus said to her, after saying to those around, he that has no sin, cast the first stone, and began to leave. He says to the woman, where are your condemners? Where are those who judge you? She said, there's no one there, Lord. And so Jesus said this, he said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Amen. Now, in the, in the context of our conversation today, asking the question, is what God created in the beginning still applicable in the days of Jesus? Is it still relevant that immorality is still sin? Is it still immoral? Is it still relevant that this woman has broken the law? And what does Jesus, the sinless Son of God, do about that situation? We think about all the possibilities. If, if the revisionist is correct, if progressive Christianity is correct, Jesus could have taken this opportunity to say, well, that's, that's a different era, and now morality is not seen the same way. We're going to deal with it in a different way. He could have said something as simple as that was then, this is now. But Jesus does none of those things in his answer. What did Jesus actually say? He did not exercise judgment at that moment, which have been, would have been stoning but rather said, go from now on, sin no more. Amen. In doing this, he was not affirming sexual immorality of any kind. He was not overlooking the gravity of sin, but rather exercised forgiveness and a warning from this moment, go forward and sin no more. I mean, all you have to do is look at this text and see that Jesus called adultery sin, the departure of God's ideal, God's plan for your life. So he upheld the, upheld the teaching and the moral code of the Old Testament, but intertwined through his answer was the obvious compassion born out of love. In other words, I love you too much to allow you to be deceived into thinking that immorality is okay. It's not. But I also love you too much to not offer you hope of forgiveness. This is not your final moment of condemnation, he says to this woman caught in adultery. But I also love you too much to let you continue your life of sexual sin. Go and sin no more. You see, a very, a very real, compassionate, clear response from Jesus, just like the woman at the well, when he responded to her, he pointed her to something greater. I read this passage and I can find some really clear principles by which I can think and I can operate and you can think and you can operate in the world around us with such a changing sexual ethic. What do we think needs to be clear in terms of Jesus' truth? I mean, note three things together in this text right here. 
First of all, Jesus called sexual immorality sin. Sexual, sexual immorality is sin. In other words, he said to the woman, your identity is a person called away from immorality. If he's answering the question, what were you created to be? He's letting her know it's not that. It's not that kind of lifestyle. It's not that kind of immorality. Notice second, Jesus exercised love and compassion for one in sexual sin. In other words, your identity is one of a person loved and cared for by Jesus Christ. I love you too much to leave you alone. And then thirdly, you'll notice that Jesus commanded her to go and sin no more. In other words, your identity is that you are not bound to a behavior that is not God's design for you. He exercises all three of these things. And in his very brief answer to her, immorality is sin. I'm going to exercise love and compassion. And you can go and you can sin no more. One modern revisionist author named Matthew Bynes actually says that such negative teaching as we just looked at in the life of Jesus about immorality is the cause of depression and the cause of suicide and destruction in the lives of people who are living the LGBTQ lifestyle. In other words, Jesus shouldn't have said it like that. Jesus shouldn't have confronted her immorality. But I would beg to differ in contrast to that statement. Here is a picture of how the sinless son of God deals with a marginalized, alienated woman caught in immorality, and she receives both love and instruction from Jesus Christ himself. And it encourages me. You can speak the truth in love. You can follow the example of Jesus Christ. You can look with compassion upon those who knowingly or unknowingly are missing their true identity and calling as children of a creator God who has an amazing plan for their life. No matter whether they knowingly or unknowingly are erring from that, you can speak in love. After this great account of Jesus dealing with this situation with this woman caught in adultery, he concludes the conversation with a startling statement that will guide us further. John 8, verse 12, then Jesus said again and spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. In other words, if I still have some questions about how to deal with the subject of immorality, how to deal with someone that's caught up in sin, if I want to know how to have clarity and compassion, then I've got someone not only to model the way, to lead the way, but who's given me light, the light that I need, the teaching that I need to walk through this life without confusion. Nobody in this room, because of Jesus Christ, should be confused about his sexual ethic or his design for our world or for your life. You need to be able to know that. So first of all, the life of Jesus. Secondly, that last statement begs us to spend some time on the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 10, there's this great verse that reminds us of how incredibly loving and powerful the teaching ministry of Jesus is and what he actually brings us. And Jesus helps us know about that in this statement in John chapter 10 where he contrasts the thief that comes to rob and kill and destroy and what the good shepherd comes to bring. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. If that's true, then everything Jesus said will help us have life and have it abundantly. Not just everlasting life, not just heaven when we die, but the most abundant life, the best kind of life that he's designed for us will be found in the teaching and the words of Jesus Christ. And by saying that, 
He reminds us that life's fulfillment doesn't come from fulfilling desires or, or wants or what we perceive as needs, but, but life's fulfillment comes from following the one who gives us life. It comes from knowing him and understanding what he says is truth. So with that, where does Jesus say anything at all about homosexuality or same-sex marriage or transgenderism? Is the New Testament silent? You're going to hear from activists, from those that want to look at uh, homosexuality, same-sex marriage. They want to look at transgenderism as a brand new form of life that the Bible doesn't address at all. They want to say that Jesus didn't shed any light at all about what's truth or what's wrong about this kind of lifestyles. That's what revisionist authors will want you to think. That's what progressive Christianity will want you to embrace. They want you to doubt and question whether the God of the universe was capable or all-knowing enough so that in the future he could say something to us that would help us in our present day. And so my question is, did Jesus leave us in the dark about all these things? And my answer will be no, he did not. If your Bible's open, turn to Matthew chapter 19. In chapter 19 of the book of Matthew, you've got to find that Jesus was clear about all these subjects that we've been naming. Clear about the created order of sexuality and gender. Clear about any departure of that would be considered sin and therefore unacceptable before God and in the church. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about divorce. When someone is asked a question about divorce, normally you and I would if we had an answer, would limit it to what we would know about or say about that subject. But when Jesus is asked a question about divorce, his answer is a bigger picture answer. His answer is not just having to do with divorce and marriage, but about all of life. Because he goes back and he quotes Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. I want you to notice this text in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4, 5, and 6. And as you read this text, please note that we have capitalized all of the words in this text. And that's actually how it's found in Scripture as well. When you see all caps, what that means is not that Jesus is shouting. If you think that Jesus is shouting, then you are too caught up in social media, <laughs> too caught up in your text messaging. Jesus is quoting word for word the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying to the people in the present day, look back at what God had already said thousands of years before. You'll find your answer there. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus definitely answers the question of divorce or divorce and remarriage. But he goes further and talks about all of creation. He goes beyond the basic answer, and he talks to us about God's created order. It all fits in how God created the heavens and the earth and male and female. Let me give you some practicals out of this verse. In this passage, Jesus reaffirms two genders. He reaffirms heterosexual marriage. He reaffirms marriage as a fundamental building block of the family. He also affirms that 4,000 years of human history has not changed the way we are to view these passages in the Bible. 4,000 years after they were first given, after creation first 
took place. In saying this, Jesus declares that any departure from the original created order or gender or marriage is a departure from God's truth. We get phone calls all the time from people who are looking for a place to worship, and one of the questions they have is, is this an affirming church? And by that question, what they mean is, does this church uh, affirm uh, gay marriage or homosexuality? And our answer is always the same. We cannot affirm what Jesus does not affirm. We don't say that rudely. We say it kindly. We say we are a welcoming church, but we are not an affirming church. We invite everyone, whoever they are, whatever their sexual ethic, whatever they come from background-wise, whatever place they are in the spectrum, we invite them to come. We invite them to get to know the God that we worship, to, to open the Bible and find out what God would say to them. We're not an affirming church because the church cannot affirm that which its head, Jesus Christ, does not affirm. But beyond all that, we look around today and we realize that it doesn't work well anyway. Departing from God's order, departing from God's design hasn't worked well. Doesn't work well in Genesis, doesn't work well now. Sean McDowell, a professor at Biola University, said in a debate about this subject, a very interesting statement. I'm going to quote it for a moment. Imagine a world where people trust and obey God with such issues as gender, sexual activity, exercise within the confines of heterosexual marriage. In other words, Jesus' sexual ethic. Can you imagine a world without sexual transmitted diseases, without brokenness from divorce, a world without abortion, or without broken dysfunctional families, where every child had a mother and a father, a world with no rape, no abuse, no trafficking, no porn, and then some would say, yes, but that's not reality. And you'd be right. But our reality is the reality of rejecting Jesus' sexual ethic. That's why we have what we have today. Jesus is affirming that God's created order has not changed. It's not in need of revision. It's not in need of revisionist commentators. It's not in need of progressive thought. We don't have to get a different set of lenses to look at what God's truth always has been, always will be true has always been truth. Truth will always be truth. People who are practicing immorality are not following the Jesus of the Bible. They've chosen another life, another way, another faith, and they are not in alignment with the life of Jesus Christ. Now think with me for a moment. If this is true, if what Jesus says is true, then it really simplifies life. We don't have to choose. We don't have to choose who we will marry in the sense of gender, we know. We don't have to choose how to, how to form a family, how to build a family. We don't, we don't have to answer questions we weren't designed to answer in the first place. We do simply need to know what our Creator says. We do simply need to come to the place of saying, I have more confidence in my Creator than I am about my feelings or my desires or what everybody else around me is saying. So the love of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, but I want to appeal to you today on the basis of the life of Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus makes this statement, He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. And I just love this next line. This next line just uh, grabs my heart every time I read it. Jesus said, For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Amen. Boy, isn't that a great quest for believers to be able to say, I always do the things that please my Father. And of course, 
You would think that this thing, this kind of a statement would come from the, the life of Jesus Christ. But what this verse tells us is that Jesus, fully man and fully God, was able to live a life of fullness and devotion and relationship and meaning without sexual activity, without sexual sin, without sexual confusion of any kind. He fully obeyed the Father. And he followed the Father's created order in terms of having a biologically male body, tempted in normal ways as all humanity is, but never giving in, never giving up to confusion. He knows what it means to have a physical desire, knows what it means to face temptation, knows what it means to turn down that temptation. And he still lived that contented life, fully pleasing to the Father. There are times today in our sexual world where the thought seems to be that if we don't find sexual fulfillment, we haven't found life at all, and that's simply not true. Sexuality is not the greatest thing God ever gave us. It is not the greatest expression of love at all. Greater love has no man than this. He laid down his life for his friends. Sacrifice is a greater demonstration of love than anything else. Now, you might say, but that was Jesus. <laughs> Jesus can do things we can't do, and that may be true, but Jesus lived the life to demonstrate that we could live it with his help. Amen. With his help. You can clap about that. So today in our culture, people seem to think that if God or Jesus say no, then that's damaging to me. If God and Jesus say no, then I'm not really bound to that. It's, it's hard on me. It's difficult for me. But if a person said no to you, you just have to deal with it. We have a whole different standard when it comes to people saying no to us and when God says no. When people say no to a, an advance of some kind, sexual advance, the voicing of a desire, and they say no, we must stop and we must deny those desires and we must move on, Right? Your denial has not caused irreparable harm, depression, or suicidal tendencies. And if it does, you're considered unstable. But if God says no, if God says no, suddenly it's mean and inconsiderate and cruel. And that the church that teaches such is doing harm to people. Hopefully you can see that for what it is. Jesus shows us that it's possible to live a contented life without sexual gratification, without activity, without disobeying God in any way. Sex is not our highest or ultimate need. Andy Stanley, I'm quoting Andy Stanley today, not in a complimentary way, but he said recently in a conference that celibacy for the LGBTQ person is not sustainable. Sam Osbury a former homosexual who came to faith in Christ, now a pastor in the United Kingdom, responded this way in social media. When any leader suggests to me that chaste obedience to Christ and singleness is not sustainable, he's saying the very same thing to me that the devil says. Wow. That quote is in Christianity today. Wow. It's important that you know who you should be listening to. It's important that they reflect the pages of Scripture. It's important for you to know that Jesus' example is that it is sustainable to have chaste obedience to Christ in singleness. It is. And he is able to help you. 
Many are the stories of those who were in the vicious cycle of gender dysphoria or sexual experimentation who stopped the cycle, trusted Christ, and lived fulfilled lives today in God's power. And yet, those are not the stories that people want you to hear. I think you need to know today, be reminded that we have an entire generation of people who have not been exposed to the scriptures that we've just looked at today over the course of the last 25 minutes. They don't know what the Bible says. They don't know how to understand what we've just said. And they have no other source other than activists for the LGBTQ plus community or post on social media to inform them. By the way, I don't want you to celebrate this. But I learned today that today, 20 years ago, Facebook was first started. This is 20th birthday. If you want to ask the question, how much damage can you do in 20 years? Ah, you should look at that. <laughs> One pastor said this. He said, today people are more discipled by social media than they are the scripture. And yet they have no idea who they're reading about. No idea about their life. No idea about, about what the damage, the confusion, and all the, uh, the destruction in their lives are all about. They don't have any idea about that. They just see something that fits what they want to feel. Let me just give you a warning today. I'm going to be real kind, but I'm going to warn you really well. Be careful who you listen to. Amen. And if you don't know them, don't listen to them. Not everybody is out for your well-being. Not everybody is out to help you. Not everybody is out to help point the light to the truth. Katie McCoy in her book, an excellent book, by the way, tells us that 80% of those in the LGBTQ plus lifestyle have some church or Christian background, which tells me that we don't talk about these kinds of things enough. It tells me that this needs to be a conversation on the front burner, not on the back burner. We've got to teach the truth about the sexual order and ethic of Jesus Christ, but we need to do it in love. So Jesus walked the life of the single person. He walked intimately with God, the Father, and in close relationship with those around him with contentment and joy. I want to kind of bring this message to a close by looking at a couple of verses that are going to be helpful to you. One of them is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. The author of Hebrews is highlighting Jesus again for the incredible character, who he actually is, and the fact that he is the intermediary between God and man. He is our high priest, the only one that we need. And in that, in that description of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, he makes this statement. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin presence of the word tempted in this passage tells us that the weaknesses are not physical weaknesses. They're not the difficulty to bear up under something, but, but the weaknesses are the dealings that we have with temptation and sin. It's not that he can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but in fact, he absolutely can understand them. And he was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And as one person said years ago, that means that Jesus underwent the temptation to the max because he never gave in. When we're tempted, we're given way too quick. We never know the maximum. Jesus was tempted to the max and yet without sin. Now, the secondary truth of this verse is that Jesus was tempted and able to withstand all the temptations and fully devoted to the Father in his ways at the same time. 
The second meaning of that verse is that he is an example for all those who struggle or who feel alone or who feel isolated or who feel that no one understands them. He was able to live with full contentment, with full life, with full purpose in obedience to his father, even though he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. That's the second meaning of this verse. The first meaning of this verse, the primary meaning of this passage is that he understands and he can help those who struggle. He can understand and he can help those who struggle. The verse that we put on the screen a few moments ago, Hebrews 4, 16, is up every week. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. But therefore, of course, follows what we've just read in verse 15. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I can't think of a better invitation from Christ to each of us. Instead of looking for people to affirm your desires or for people to help you with your confused sexual or gender identity, instead of seeking fulfillment through the object of your perfection, of your affections, or, or by changing your body, look to find grace and help from Jesus. Amen. He knows, he understands, he can help, and he promises true freedom, which isn't the freedom to become something that you want to be, but it means embracing who you actually have been created to be in his eyes, knowing who you are created to be and knowing how to walk that out day by day. He will give you grace and help in time of need. Amen. Coming back to John eight twelve. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. Do you want light? Do you want life? Follow him. Follow him. And as you follow him, he reveals that to you. It's a testimony of thousands that you may never hear. But it's the statement of Jesus that everybody has seen. The one you can trust for your salvation can also be trusted for your perspective and your life. Trust. I want you to bow with me for a moment. A couple of things today. I'm going to, first of all, just offer a word of prayer. After I pray, we're going to give a, a further word of instruction because this is an unusual day and we have some things happening that you need to know about. But first, I'll pray. And then Russell Gregory will come up and help us with what's next. As, as I pray, let me just say this to you today. If you're here and you struggle... I hope today you can see that there is one who knows exactly what you've gone through and is able to help. He gives you grace. In the toughest moments, grace to help when in time of need, in that moment. In the moment where you think that all is lost, the moment when you think there's, there's no way you're going to make it through, there's no way you're going to get the answer, he offers grace to help in time of need. Jesus is on time, 100% of the time. But you need to look to him and come boldly before the throne of grace. That's your act of faith. And in that act of faith, you need to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for all that sin. You say, what, what do you mean all that sin? I mean all that sin of mankind. All mine, all yours. All of those 
who have gone before us, all of those who will come after us. He died for all that. And he offers forgiveness and freedom to you today, no matter what it is that you need to be forgiven of. But the biggest thing that you need to be forgiven of is disbelief, unbelief. And not trusting him with your identity, with your future, with your life. So my appeal to you today is first, trust him for your salvation. And then trust him for your perspective. And then trust him with your life. As soon as I close and as soon as we get some instructions over these next few moments, we have decision stations that are open at the back of our room. And I encourage you to stop by. If you want to talk to somebody about any of this, and certainly talk to someone about placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we want to visit with you today. We don't have the normal thing of the guest reception room after our service, but we have a conference continuing on, and I encourage you to come back with us. Father, in Jesus' name, I am just so grateful that there are answers in your word for every question we have. No matter how difficult the question, no matter how many different voices are chiming in about supposed answers, Father, I, I thank you that we have clarity and compassion from you, from the source. Father, thank you that your word speaks clearly. I pray, God, that we as believers can trust you with that for our lives, but also represent that well to people around us. In the room today, there are people that struggle. I pray, God, that they will come boldly before the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need. There are those today in this room that have never placed their faith and trust in you, and I pray today you'd give them the boldness to talk to someone at our decision station and say, I need to know about this relationship. Father, meet them there. Meet them there. Lord, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you for every person here today, not by accident. They're here because you wanted them to hear what is said and what will be said in these hours ahead. We ask all this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.